Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Derek E. Lee. He's a principal scientist, part of the Wild Nature Institute. This is a uh, at Penn State University. He's a uh, associate research professor there. So we're going to talk about his work. Uh, Derek, thanks for coming. Thanks, Richard. If you would, tell me about your uh, research. What what animals do you work with currently and um, you know which ones have you worked with in the past? Sure. So I'm a wildlife biologist and a population biologist. So I try to figure out why a population of organisms is going up or down or staying the same. And right now I'm working on giraffes, Maasai giraffes in Tanzania. And in the past, I've worked on lots of other things, spotted owls, monk seals, elephant seals, seabirds, lots of different creatures. They're all cool in their own way, but um, my main thing is to try and, like I said, figure out how, why the population is going up or down and and whether we can do something about that. So giraffes is what you're studying and and, um, what kinds of giraffes are there and which kind are you studying? So I'm studying Maasai giraffes, which are the most numerous subspecies of giraffe, and they are only found in Tanzania and southern Kenya. And these are really cool giraffes. They're the biggest kind of giraffe, and they're uh, these really beautiful spot patterns that are super diverse and interesting, very complicated spot patterns, sort of a, a more fractalized kind of version of the the more generic spot patterns that you see like in uh, in fabrics and upholstery it's a it's a popular sort of uh, uh, pattern in fashion and and that's usually sort of the reticulated pattern which is more blocky and and squared off but the Maasai giraffes have these really cool more floral and intricate patterns on their spot interesting we use those spots as as a major part of our research because we use the spots to identify individuals because each spot pattern is unique to that individual and it doesn't change over the course of their life. So we use these born in marks to identify individuals 
and then follow them throughout their lives. And we can understand births and deaths and movements and behaviors of animals when we have this individual-based data. And that's really kind of the gold, most valuable kind of data about wildlife biology is individual-based data. What other creatures are giraffes closest to in terms of uh, similarity? Are they close to horses or a mixture right. of a couple animals? Right. So the, the the idea we have now, the hypothesis we have now, our working theory is that they are most closely related to okapi, which is the only other extant giraffid in the family giraffidae. So in that family, we have giraffes and okapis. And okapis are a forest animal, lives in deep in the Congo rainforest. And it looks kind of like a horse with dark fur and black and white zebra stripes on the rear legs, and then ossicones, these weird kind of horn-like structures on the head that giraffes and okapis have. So that's the very closest relative. And then the next closest relative is the American pronghorn, which is another unique ungulate in the world. It's, I think, the only member of it, only one species in that genus, Antelocapridae. And then the next closest is deer and elk, cervidae. Yeah, what interests you in particular about giraffes and in terms of population okay. dynamics, what, what are some of the factors for them particularly? So giraffes are endangered. They have sort of had a quiet extinction process happening over the last 30 years. They've gone down by about half in the case of the Maasai giraffes, and that's mostly due to habitat loss as people convert landscapes more to farming and human uses. And also deforestation, we've lost a lot of woodlands to human uses. It's, a, it's the number one uh, fuel for cooking is wood. And a major small business for rural people is to create charcoal out of wood and then sell that to city people. It's the biomass cooking is one of the major forms of cooking fuel in Tanzania. And that's contributed to a loss of the woodlands. So the, because they're endangered, that sort of piques my interest because I'm very concerned with biodiversity loss on the planet. And, and so I've decided to focus my work on trying to stop that biodiversity loss and try to do what we can to save as much natural area as we can, because that's really our best, our best strategy for combating the twin crises of biodiversity loss and climate change is to have lots of functioning ecosystems doing all the things that they are designed to do. Giraffes are these big, charismatic, gorgeous animals. They can be a flagship species. And if we can protect giraffes and make a landscape that can support giraffes, then that'll support lots of other biodiversity as a consequence of that. So uh, because giraffes are so awesome and unique, I really wanted to put my attention on them and do what we can to, to try and do our science and our education and our actions to try and protect these guys and, and all the nature that goes along with them. Where are they at in terms of um, the food chain? Like who hunts them? What do they eat? You know, what's their normal role when they're undisturbed? So giraffes are herbivores and they're browsers. They mostly eat the leaves and flowers and seed pods on woody plants. Their favorite is acacia, which has been renamed or re-taxonomized as uh, Vachelia and Senegal, Senegalia, I think, are the two new groups, two new genuses that used to be called acacia. It's these classic African trees, you know, with the flat tops often and thorns, and, and it's a leguminous tree, and that's their favorite food. So there are these mainly browsers, you could almost exclusively browsers. They do eat some herbs and things as well. 
And because they're so huge, they're one of the few mega herbivores left in the world. As adults, they're not really subject to much predation, natural predation. There is a lot of human poaching done to kill giraffes for bushmeat market. And that's a big cause of mortality of adults that is, is not, you know, it's not a natural predation on the adults. Normally they would be large enough to escape most predators. But as, as calves, they are susceptible to lions and hyenas and leopards. And I guess maybe some, uh, a group of dedicated cheetahs could maybe get a, a giraffe. I'm not sure if there's any records of that, but definitely lions and hyenas and wild dogs, if there's any wild dogs in the area. So that, that's their main natural predators is the predation on the calves done by the usual suite of predators here. And then there's an unnatural predation, which is the human bushmeat market poaching for, uh, for bushmeat markets. And that's- So you uh, say you know, bushmeat, people, uh, what, they kill and they eat the giraffes? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. There's pretty large, widespread, uh, well-developed bushmeat markets across Africa and across the world, really. I mean, bushmeat is kind of just a, a term for illegally taking wild animals and then selling, processing them and selling them uh, as meat in the markets. I mean, we do the same thing with fish. We take them from the wild too, but it's not called bushmeat. It's called fishing, industrial fishing or whatever it is, commercial fishing. So bushmeat is what's generally talked about when when wild animals are illegally killed and then processed and resold on a market. And some of the impetus for that is really economic because a lot of rural folks don't have a lot of employment opportunities or opportunities, economic opportunities. So this is one way that people can make money. And there's a the, the market is usually an urban market. And so this stuff is coming from the countryside and flowing into more urbanized areas typically. What are some of your hypotheses or experimentations around giraffes? Like, are you out in the field near active populations, like surveying them or like what's your work consistent? So what we do is we use those natural markings of the spot patterns to identify individuals. And then with individual based data, we can then estimate survival rates, reproductive rates, movement rates among different areas and behavioral uh, behavioral observations as well. And so with that information, we can figure out where giraffes are doing well, where they're not doing well, and why. And then we can understand what are the, the forces acting on different populations and where maybe we have a, a chance to put in a lever and push the population up. Because like I said, they've they've declined precipitously over the last few decades. And so they've become endangered. And now we need to take action to try and help them out. And so what we do is look at demography, so births, deaths, and movements. And then with that kind of information, you can figure out exactly what part of the population is 
with a declining population, what's the problem? What, what part of the population is driving that decline? And we found that it's a lot of it is these adult females being lost to poaching because with a long-lived animal like giraffes, they can live 25, 30 years. A long-lived animal that reproduces very slowly, they reproduce only about one calf every 20 months. So these adult females are really important to maintaining a population and creating a growing population is to protect the breeding females. So it's like different from females. Oh yeah, you can tell from they're they're bigger. They have these really thick, flat-topped ossicones on their heads. Uh, they have the uh, external genitalia, which is a good dead giveaway. And so you could tell which ones are which. But from a population standpoint, with an animal like like a giraffe, a, a mammal that reproduces sexually and that has usually one or a few males who are like the dominants, who are monopolizing most of the mating opportunities. You only need a few of them. A few, uh, very few males can make the next generation of offspring, but each each offspring needs a mother. And so the females are more important from a population standpoint of making the next generation because it doesn't take very many males to create the next generation, but each calf needs its own mother. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Do poachers know... So we- that they're preying on females, or do they just not care? Uh, the, grab what they can? the poachers uh, take adults equal opportunity of the sexes. They don't select the females. Uh, sorry, I mis- misspoke there. The, the females are the most important part of the population, and losing them is the biggest problem uh, to the population. But the poachers are taking adults of all se- of both sexes. Can you mark the giraffes in a certain way so the poachers know that this particular giraffe has been marked and then maybe put out? information on radio or whatever that, you know, if you, if you poach a marked giraffe, then the penalty is 10 times more or, you know, Hey, we're tracking these with GPS. So if you poach them, we're going to know exactly where you are. Type. Has anyone thought of something? Like that? Uh, that would be great, but uh, we're going to just try to get the, the law enforcement to protect all the giraffes, not just the ones that we're paying attention to. So we really need to keep track of, I mean, take care of all of them. And the law enforcement guys are, have a very difficult job. It's really hard to patrol vast areas, especially in these wild places where the giraffes live. And and the bushmeat poaching industry is really just that. It's an industry. It has lots of different people involved at different levels. And so it can be difficult, like any uh, illegal activity. You know, you could sort of say the same thing. Why don't law enforcement just take care of it? But it's it's because it's such a difficult problem and there's so many people involved. and, And so... They're doing a good job, and there's been some really good headway made uh, in Tanzania and around the world and around the continent of Africa. Uh, in the recent past, that you probably remember the, the big elephant poaching spree that was really terrible about 10 years ago now, and that has been disrupted due to dedicated efforts of wildlife crime, law enforcement people, and similar things have happened in the, in the bushmeat world where because a lot of these illegal activities are run by similar groups of people. They're, most criminal gangs are pretty diversified and have lots of things going on. And so by disrupting the ivory poaching, you can disrupt the bushmeat poaching and you can disrupt uh, illegal arms trafficking and human trafficking and drugs and lots of other stuff too. So uh, the, the elephant poaching crisis of a few years ago attracted a lot of attention and a lot of resources. And those law enforcement people have made a lot of great progress in disrupting these criminal gangs and criminal syndicates uh, in East Africa and operating across, usually they're, they're transnationals operating across 
African countries and into East Asia and into the USA and Europe as well. So there's been some good progress lately on that front. And those are the guys, those guys are really the, the, the front line, the, the thin green line, as they say, against uh, wildlife crime. Well, what are some things that were learned from the elephant poaching incidents that could be applied today? Oh, yeah. So it's an ever-evolving thing, isn't it? The appreciation, I think, by some like government agencies and, and, and entities around the world, understanding that these criminal gangs are, are, have lots of different activities and that you can't separate one piece from the others and seeing that it's all tied together and that if people are concerned with the civil unrest, civil war, where you have sometimes groups like the Lord's Resistance Army or Al-Shabaab, they're profiting from poaching and trafficking of all kinds. And so by uh, interrupting these activities, you can interrupt uh, other activities like terrorism or uh, civil unrest or civil war because it's all connected. So I think that's an interesting piece that I don't think was fully appreciated in the past that that these things are all connected. How many giraffes are there? Like, would it be impractical or impossible to tag all of them or even a good number of them? Well, again, like we don't tag because giraffes are born with uh, these natural marks. We don't have to tag them because tagging is a bit of a, it's a pretty huge uh, interference with them and their lives to catch an animal and immobilize it. You usually have to use chemicals, chemical restraints, and there's always a danger to the animal, either from the chemicals or from the physical process of capture. It's dangerous to the people involved. So we do everything hands off. We do it all based on the spot patterns. And tracking the individual animals is is a little bit huge. It's huge, right? It's an enormous effort. So from what I understand of, of law enforcement is it's it's much more useful to use an intelligence-based approach. And, and also an approach that is in partnership with local people. So instead of sort of a heavy military, you know, come, guys dropping out of helicopters onto some village, you have people who live there, who know everybody, who are friendly with everybody, and can talk about what's happening in the community and gather information about bad people who are maybe coming in and, and convincing people to do illegal activities. And so intelligence, I think, is a much stronger approach towards law enforcement rather than like an occupying army type type force. I think being a ground up grassroots kind of thing is much more effective. And one of the things that we found is that when you have community conservation, community-based conservation, which means the local people are making decisions about the, how the land that they live on is going to be used and, and how they want to organize themselves and, and take care of the land that, that they rely on, they'll be much more invested in that. And, and if you give people, I, want to, I don't want to say ownership, but autonomy at least over their livelihoods and over their the land that they live on, they can be extremely, or not they can be, they are extremely valuable partners and they are the people who are doing the intelligence work and they are the people doing the law enforcement at the very grassroots level. And that has been a huge revolution, I think, in conservation in the last few years or last few decades really but it's really taking off now that indigenous people people who are who are living off the land they are very important to to conservation if they're given the tools and given the power to be conservationists usually there's kind of a fortress conservation mentality like make a park put a bunch of rangers and and, and armed guys in the park and around the park and protect the park 
but that's just impossible. It's just logistically impossible to protect a huge area. And so the, the way that we've learned is much more effective is when you have local people who are making decisions about their lives and they have the power to make those decisions and negotiate about their own economic livelihoods, they become indispensable and, and much more, they begin to protect everything and they see everything and they, you know, they, can, they can call people in if they need help. But having, the, having local people involved is really the most important thing and not just having them involved, but having them be the leaders and the, the people in charge of what's happening on their land. What do the locals think about uh, the giraffes? Did you have to educate them or you know, how do you work with them? How do you, what, what do they believe when you first talk to them and how do you get them interested well, luck- and involved? Yeah, so luckily giraffes and humans have very little conflict. The giraffes don't eat crops. They don't, uh, they don't hurt people usually. They just want, if people are in an area, the giraffes will usually just kind of avoid the people if giraffes and people are uh, in the same area. Unlike elephants, which kill people and raid crops or lions that kill people and eat livestock, those human-wildlife conflicts are much more difficult, but, they, but they're not insurmountable. There's been a lot of cases where educating people, better strategies on how to coexist with wildlife, they, they can easily coexist with even dangerous wildlife like lions and elephants. But giraffes, it's easy because people, people love giraffes. It's the Tanzanian national animal. They're beautiful. And they have this this lack of conflict with of direct conflict with people. So the the conflict that really happens is just the protected areas where giraffes live at much higher densities than outside the protected areas. And there's often conflict over the the ecotourism industries that maybe take advantage of these parks. And the parks are, can be a, a detriment to the local people living right outside the parks. Uh, but those local people don't see a lot of the benefits, if any of the benefits of the park, because the tourism industry maybe excludes them from, from participating or they don't have the resources or the, the necessary capital or, or know-how or know the right people to be involved. So helping them get involved uh, by basically giving them rights over their, the land they live on and decision-making processes uh, can be a huge benefit because Oftentimes, there's kind of a top-down federal level or, or state level kind of thing where governments and big NGOs are trying to push a conservation agenda, and it can be even uh, antagonistic to local people or exclusionary to local people, which just makes them angry, and then they're no longer partners or leaders of the conservation activities. They become antagonistic, and that is just bad for conservation and so uh, getting all those pieces together to where local people are involved and, and leading the way and making decisions on their resources is really the, the best way to have conservation going forward. And it's been shown time and again that these are the people who are the most effective at protecting those resources. Because when mm-hmm. it's your livelihood at stake and, and you have been given the, the keys to it, then you will protect it. There's a lot of the breakdowns happen when a higher level of government gets involved and says, okay, we're in charge here and, and we're going to make decisions. And, and then the local people are excluded from those decisions and maybe their forest gets given away to a logging company or sold to a logging company or their land gets uh, given to a, a mining company. You know, then they lose that without the local people having that autonomy to say, no, we don't want a hunting concession or we don't want a mine. Then 
uh, but they can be extremely effective at, at stopping stuff. Anyone who's ever tried or who's ever, you know, been involved in a NIMBY campaign over anything in the States should understand like locals are either your best ally or your worst adversary. Uh, if, if you're trying to do something, you really need people to be on board and to be invested in it and see it as something that they want to do. Otherwise, it's just going to be either you're going to have injustice or you're going to have, uh, you know, human rights violations or something. But these, when the people are, the local people are involved and, and making decisions, self-determination, then things go much easier and usually in a much better direction and, and they have a lot more say in how things are done. So how many uh, giraffes are estimated to be in the areas you're looking at? So overall, there's probably only around 100,000 giraffes left in the whole world. There's about, uh, our best estimate is about 25 to 30,000 Maasai giraffes, and that's in Tanzania and Southern Kenya. So not very many, you know, the, the population of a, a small town or, you know, a small city for the entire giraffe population of the world, 100,000. Our study area in Terengire is the number of animals that we've identified based on our spot pattern technology is right around 4,000. And then we have recently expanded into Serengeti and Gorongoro ecosystem as well. And we're, we're studying uh, several hundred there, but I don't have the exact number off the top of my head. But our, our long-term study in Terengire is, is thousands of animals that we, that we know individually and we follow them through their lives to see what's going on with them. So what is the, uh, I, don't, I don't know, what you've learned that working with the local populace is far better than, again, a top-down approach, but what headway is being made or, you know, what's next in the conservation effort? What needs to be done? Oh, great idea. So the, the, the big thing is just getting that, that um, knowledge that, that community-based conservation is extremely effective, can be extremely effective. We did a couple studies in, our st in, in the Terengiri ecosystem looking at two community-based conservation areas. They're called wildlife management areas in Tanzania. And uh, they are, they've been extremely effective. They've, we saw increases in, in densities of not just giraffes, but lots of other animals in an area that was not a, a wildlife management area, was not community-based conservation, and it was instituted. And we saw in, significant increases in the densities of several species of animals. And then in another study, we found that in the community conservation area, we had higher survival of giraffes relative to outside the conservation area. So getting the local people involved is the main thing. And in the Tanzanian context, that means wildlife management areas or in the forest, in the forest environment, community forest reserves. And once you get the local, so that, that WMA, that wildlife management area or the community forest reserves, that is a very specific legal activity that devolves the control of the resources to the local people. Because right now they are not able to exercise their, their, their determination on what happens with their resources because they don't have that right. So, but this legal structure of wildlife management areas, and there's, there's a couple others, community certificates, is it certificate of community resource occupation. Anyway, there's, there's various legal ways that local people can get the legal rights to be autonomous and self-determining about their natural resources. That's the first step. And then supporting those people and those community conservation areas, because usually they have a rough time of it in the first few years to get them rolling, get them off the ground, 
these things were new, uh, brand new, only like a decade or two decades ago. And the ones that have been around for a decade or so now are really showing themselves to be amazingly effective conserving habitat and conserving wildlife and biodiversity. So th those things are really, I think, the way to go in the future is to, to really give people large areas of land, uh, native people to, and they have the full rights to decide what to do with that stuff and the legal, the legal ability to say to powerful industries that may want to come in and exploit their resources to be able to say no, because that, that disparity of power is a big problem. There's, there's big industries that, are, that want to usually take those resources from local people and giving them strong legal tools to stop to fight that is, to me, to my mind, the best way to go. You know, at the same time, we have to enforce the laws that we already have effectively through this intelligence-based law enforcement. Cool. Very good. Uh, Derek, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So we have a website, wildnatureinstitute.org. And uh, that's where you'll find all of our all of our papers and all of our projects, all of our science and education and uh, actions that we do for uh, giraffes and other endangered species and their habitats. Okay, and that's the best place anywhere else, or is that it? Uh, well, the Wild Nature Institute is where where we have everything about what we're do what we're mm -hmm. doing in Terengire and Serengeti. If people are interested in in supporting law enforcement more directly. There's a group called PAMS Foundation, which is an excellent uh, group that works in intelligence and law enforcement, international law enforcement against wildlife crimes. That's PAMS Foundation. Okay. Well, very good. Derek, thanks for coming on the podcast and talking about this. It's uh, you know, very unusual, but interesting. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.